we acknowledge that what you have done, uh, we see it, Lord. You've moved in people's hearts to give, to sacrificially give. You have moved in people to serve in unique ways. And so, Lord, we give you praise. We give you praise for counsel and wisdom that comes when we ask for it. We thank you that you continue to use the body of Christ to sharpen each other and mold it more into the image of your Son, Lord, corporately and then individually. And so we give you praise for these things. We're thankful for a place to gather, a roof over our head. We thank you for this building, Lord. We know it's just a, a structure, Lord. The true church is those who sit here right now. This is the true church of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we do thank you for buildings. We thank you for parking lots and grass and fields and the things you've blessed this church with. May we be good stewards of those things. We thank you for life. So many in here, there's babies coming in the future. There's newborn children in our midst. And we have people from that newborn all the way through those who are ready to be with you at any moment. And we thank you for that, Lord. We thank you that you are the author of life and you have ordained our days before there was one. And yes, Lord, we, we are but dust. And, and when we lose loved ones, little ones and older ones, as we've seen this past year, our hearts are heavy with that. But joy quickly comes in the morning that we, when we rehearse the truth of the scriptures that that soul is never apart from you. Never absent. Once a believer is saved, they are never absent from the presence of Christ. Life and death. And so we praise you for that, even as we remember them and thank the Lord for them. Lord, now, life is for the living now. What are we doing? How are we involved? Where do we need to die to self, Lord? Where do we need to live for Christ? What areas do we struggle in? A love for you, Jesus? A love for your word? A love for one another? Lord, show us this morning that. Help us to take this challenge as Paul is finishing up this letter to the Corinth church to take this personally. To think about where our allegiance lie. To ourselves? To our own well-being? Or to our Lord Jesus Christ who gave everything? Lord, help us as we grow in the grace and knowledge of you this morning. May you bless the word of God in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the last few weeks I've been finishing up um, these five imperatives, verse 13 and 14 of chapter 16 of 1 Corinthians. Be on the alert. We spend a lot of time what it means to be on alert and what happens if you're not alert. <laughs> oh, stand firm in the faith. Oh, you begin with a great faith. It's a gift from God. Stand firm in it. Put your faith in what God has done, not in what you have done. Act like men. Understand the God-given roles that he has given to his children and execute those for his glory, not out of duty or, not out of duty or, or because you have to, but out of delight in him. Men leading, showing the picture of Christ. Women showing that beautiful picture of the church, submitting to the lordship of Jesus. Oh, we have these beautiful roles be strong. <laughs> oh, Paul told Timothy, be strong in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord. Strength comes through humility. He strengthens those who humble themselves. We were reminded of that truth. And then verse 14, this capstone verse, let all that you do be done in love. All. Boy, that's a challenge, isn't it? I, you know I love to circle the word all in my Bible. And I think about that all. Oh, Lord, all? <laughs> Everything? Done in love? There's the challenge. And I think that flows into his closing arguments and thoughts that he has here. And so let's turn to our outlines. I want to start number one, the sweet, worshipful fruit of evangelism. The sweet, worshipful fruit of evangelism. Look at verse 15 with me as we're reminded what Pastor Giaquinto just read. Now I urge you, brethren... For synthesis here, you know the household of Stephan, Stephanos, that they were the first fruits of Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves for the ministry of the saints. So here he stops for just a moment. You can see he's, he's ready to say something. He comes with a strong urging, but yet he has to 
He has to put a little break in there. I think he's about ready to show us an example. How do you do things in love? How do you do everything in love? And so after these five strong imperatives, Paul is going to take the Corinthians church through this last strong exhortation. And he's reserved this word. This word urge is an interesting word. He uses this often. We find it throughout his epistles. Uh, we find it in places like, I urge you, brother, in Romans 12, 1, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as living and holy sacrifices acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Perikleeto is the word, urge. It carries the idea of a strong appeal. He's going to appeal to us strongly. He's going to summon us and exhort us here. But the exhortation in verse 15, before he gets to that, before he tells us about that exhortation, in the middle of that thought, he's reminded of the example of Stephanos here. He comes to mind. And there's, there's nothing sweeter in ministry when, when there's people who come and visit you or come and remind you of the gospel impact that, that was in their life. I have in my study uh, boxes of cards from a little over 39 years of ministry now. Boxes of cards. I've never thrown away one card that, or letter that I've received. I have boxes of them, and so many times God sent them at the right time. Someone who loves Christ and loves his word and loves his people sends a simple note. The, the encouragement is here, and I think this is what we're seeing. This household of Stephanos was exactly what Paul is talking about here. Paul met them um, while he was in great opposition. He made his way into Athens, and there, boy, did he take it on the chin. He, he had so many reject him in great opposition to the ministry of the gospel of Jesus. Jews rejected. And then that's where he says in, in Acts 18 and 19, he says, I turn now to the Gentiles. But there were a few. There were men like Crispus. He's seen in chapter 1, verse 14. His conversion is in Acts 18, verse 8. He was a Jewish synagogue leader. He turned in Christ, but the majority of the Jews rejected and Paul turns to the Gentiles. And God gave Paul a great harvest of Gentile believers in Corinth. And one of them, a special one, was the household of Stephanos. This is not the first time we've heard this name. If you remember when he was admonishing the church in the very first chapter of the factitious behavior that they got in. And, oh, this one was baptized by this person. And this one was baptized by another person. He says, oh, I'm glad I didn't baptize any of you. And he goes, wait a minute. I did baptize the house, Stephanos and his household and maybe a few others. So this is the second time he's brought this man up. And it helps us understand that there is a unique connection. And I think it's quite striking that Paul thinks back of the early days of the church of Corinth. And he thinks about this guy. This man had something about him. He was a great encouragement to the apostle Paul. And Paul calls him and his family. Notice he calls him in this verse the first fruit of his work. What a term. That's a a very old biblical, Old Testament biblical term. He's borrowed that from the Old Testament. It's, a, it's the understanding of this worshipful sacrifice given to God for what he has done. It's taking the first of the things that come and you offer them back to God, a principle that was just pure worship. It was not done in, in to, to have your sins forgiven. It was an act of worship that your sins were forgiven. And listen, he calls the house Stephanos in the household a first fruit. You think about every salvation that takes place is certainly is a sweet and worshipful offering to God. God in his providence chooses to save us. Our Bible teaches us that if it was not for the plan of God to save our souls, we would be lost forever. We would remain dead in our sins. And so when we think about this, when he turns to this man, and Paul would say this about his own salvation, we are the first fruit of Christ justifying work on the cross and see that's what that's what happens that's that's when we know we're pardoned when we turn to Christ and realize that he pardoned all our sins without any effort of our own I love the word pardon see when you're pardoned you were guilty this has nothing to do with presidential pardons and all of that when we think biblically, when we think about the term pardon means I was guilty and deserving of the just 
judgment that was coming my way. And I was pardoned. And I think pardoned people offer up a sacrifice of praise. And probably why we don't worship sometimes is because we forget that we've been pardoned. That sin and the guilt has been removed. The pardoning of sins, the forgiveness of sin is at the very core of Christianity. What's a Christian? One who Christ pardoned. That's a Christian. Our sins are no more. They've been removed. They were canceled out, as Paul wrote in Colossians. They were nailed to the cross. We were removed from those. He bore them. He was the substitute for us. He bore our sins. He beat it, and he proved it to the resurrection. Now he sits at the right hand of the Father. And you think about all of that. Christ, the creator, becomes a man. He's God. He steps out of heaven, becomes a man, though he's eternal, to come down and take the holy and just wrath of the Father in order to pardon us. If you forget that, and you don't live like you're pardoned, you have forgot the gospel. You are pardoned, brother and sister, if you're saved. And it's what motivates us. Paul says, I'm determined to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I'm determined to know nothing but his pardoning work on the cross for me. That's, that's what surrounds every theology, every doctrine he taught was infused with that thinking. And he loved men who, who were captured by that. When you understand pardon, you begin to evangelize. If you deserve eternal punishment, eternal death, and you've been pardoned of that, you won't tell anybody that? You might have to question your pardoning. See, evangelism flows easy for Paul. Out of his lips, he'd been thinking about this, and the result was he found men like Stephanus, and he shared the gospel with them, and these, these men were saved, and they were converts, and they became sweet, worshipful fruit of the first harvest of a ministry there. I can think of Several families in our first church, Gina and I started very, very young in ministry. Baby boys just going started and almost cold turkey with not a lot of help. And I, I remember the first main couple that came to the Lord in our town. Five divorces between them, absolute disaster. I remember saying, God, are you kidding me? I, I, this is such a mess. And I began just to share the gospel with them with a broken, heavy heart of one who'd been pardoned. And their only hope is this couple was so, so destroyed in this world. And God saved them. Their name is Kim and Candy. (laughs) I'll never forget them. They were the first fruits of our ministry in Lake City, California. See, first of all, I think you have to think about the harvest. Are you part of it? Ooh. Have you been gathered in? There's a big difference of watching the first fruit, coming and being among the first fruits, but are you part of that? Has your soul been saved? Did you hear the gospel? And is Jesus a sweet aroma to you? And is he beautiful to you that he's forgiven you and he's changed your life? Second, are you carrying the, the pardon message? I think that's probably where we can drop the the line, huh? We've been pardoned and then we get so busy in this world and we forget to carry the message. We, kept, we, we stop pleading with God to save the lost. We get comfortable in our savedness. <laughs> Paul longed for that message to go out. This was why Stephanus encouraged him. He desired to see God glorified. He wanted God worshipped by the saving of souls. And I pray every day, let this church, let it constantly be offering up these first fruits of sacrifice. I I think in a way, maybe that's our baptisms in some ways. If you're here on those Sunday nights when we do those, uh, it's just an overwhelming spirit of joy in this building as those testimonies are given. And it's in a way, we're going, God, here they are. You saved them. They're the first fruits in some cases of their family. And they're a time of rejoicing. See, we don't want to miss out on opportunities to worship. 
But it starts with preaching the gospel to ourselves. This is why Stephanos became that man that Paul could mention and remember him. Because he knew the gospel. He preached it from his heart. It came from his heart. And his tongue now followed his heart. Oh, may the Father use River Bend that way. Notice towards the end of verse 15, he says that they have devoted themselves for the ministry of the saints. See, the result of Paul's labor was not only first fruits, but now people are fruitful in ministry. These people became devoted to the ministry of the saints. That's what happens. You get saved, and then you now are devoted to the ministry of the saints. And now that can be evangelism and training and teaching and preaching and caring and loving and praying and, and helping and all of those things. But, the, but you can't say, I'm a first fruits, I've been saved, but I have no ministry. It rejects the power of God to change our lives and set us on a new course. So Stephanos and his family did not wait for some kind of official ordination. They just said, we're saved, we're serving. That's what they did. And Paul saw that. He, he, he picks them out of this. Evangelism is that result. Church grows. Ministry happens because believers devote it to one another. They did not wait to be recognized. I I think what happens, if you want to know how to be recognized, and I don't think you should go about this way, but what happens is we find people who are serving without being asked. (laughs) I think that's the best pastors and elders and deacons and Titus 2 type of women and and men and women and young people serving is to just get in and they roll up the sleeves and they go, okay, how can we serve Jesus? Then recognition comes. See, that's because love drives service. Love of Christ, love his word, love his people. It just drives your surface to the Lord. Let me encourage you, brothers and sisters. We have had several funerals here and memorial services lately here. Serve to the end. I, I, I'm praying God will let me do that. Finish all the way. Serve till you're emptied out. He goes, well, Scott, I'm emptied out. <laughs> no, you're not. You've still got breath. You're not empty out. You can lay in a hospital bed and pray. Serve to have nothing less. Let love drive your service. This is what Stephanos and his family did. Be a Stephanos. Two, the gospel creates humility in leading and submitting. Look at verse 16. Now he gets back to what he was going to say. I want to urge you, brother, and then all of a sudden now 16 comes along, that you also be in subjection to such men and to everyone who helps in work and labor. This is what he was trying to urge to do. And the Bible's teaching everyone submits to somebody in God's economy. Elders, they submit to the Lord Jesus Christ as the head of the church. Husbands submit to Christ as they learn to be a picture of them. Wives submit to their husbands as they do it unto the Lord as a picture of the church. Children submit to parents for joy and longevity. Employers submit to governments and stockholders. Employees submit to their employers so that the coming of Jesus would be worshipped and honored, Peter tells us. All believers submit to governing authorities. Young men submit to older men. Young women submit to older women. The mentored submits to the mentor. This is God's economy. The question is, what's driving our submission? Notice the word there in verse 16. It says, be in subjection. You can translate it submission. It's hupotasso. It's a great term. It works for military and athletics and life. It's a term used very prominent throughout the scriptures. It means line your affairs up under these people. Isn't that interesting? Paul would say, line your affairs under guys like Stephanos. Line them up. That's the men you need to follow. And to everyone who helps in the work and the labor, to anyone who's serving the Lord Jesus, go get underneath them and say, how can I learn from you? This is what Paul's teaching. And you either do that by duty or delight. And I think that's the challenge, isn't it? I remember when Gene and I were growing up in ministry together and serving as we were young, there was a song we used to sing. It was, you probably maybe heard it. If you want to be great in God's kingdom, be a servant of all. Well, people came at that different ways. You, you would say, oh, great, if I want to be a, a great in the kingdom, I've got to find somewhere to serve. <laughs> That's not the attitude of the song. <laughs> but people think that way sometimes, right? It's a workspace. No, no, if you want to be great 
in the kingdom of God, be a servant of all. Make the gospel great. Make Christ great. Be a grace-driven theology, grace-driven uh, volunteerism, grace-driven uh, servant type of attitude here is what the Bible taught us. And Gene and I took that and said, we want to be that kind of people. Years and years ago, very young, not knowing much, not been trained yet. We just had a heart to serve the Lord. We started with children and then a little older children. And we, they finally let us get in front of adults someday. But it starts that way often. Do you have a heart to serve? See, the difference is you're consumed with yourself or you're consumed with Christ, one of the two. That's what causes people to go to the mission field. That's what causes people to give their time up, show up early, help set up this, do that, goes, goes to visit that person. All those things because Christ has captured them. Jesus himself said, whoever wishes to become great among you, be a servant. Whoever wishes to be first among you shall be a slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom. Let me challenge you this morning. Find men and women who love Christ, who love his word, and love the church. Find those people. Say, can I, can I go with you, be with you? How, how can I help you? I mean, it just radically changes your life when you find people like Estefanos who you can serve with. Submit to them. Hang out with them. Find what they're doing. Imitate them as they imitate Christ. And if they fail, forgive them as you have been forgiven. <laughs> Get up and keep running. Look again with me at verse 16 there. Being in subjection to such men and to everyone who helps in work and labor. Remember, Paul is trying to motivate a very self-centered church. This is a non-submissive church. He knows that this church has a hard time. And so he's telling them, hey, you have a man. You have several men who are here with me. They are worth submitting to. They're worth lining your affairs up. Give up on your own goals that they were so caught up with and serve these. So is God asking you to submit? Well, yes, he is. We all do. Who's he asking you to submit to? Husbands? Is your submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? You want your wife to submit to you, line her affairs up under you? I'll tell you, it'll be much easier for her. And she will be a greater worship if you will submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. She'll follow you anywhere. And if she doesn't, you'll be that tool that God may help her do those things. Ladies, God has given you the greatest role. You get to be a picture of what the church is supposed to be like. Line your affairs up underneath your husband. Win him by loving him and submitting to him as 1 Peter 3 teaches. Children, you want joy in your life? Stop fighting your parents. Submit to them. The Bible says you'll have joy and longevity. I think those are two pretty good things. Joy and longevity. Submit to them. Employers, lead well. Lead graciously. Employees, that's your mission field. God sent you to that job. You may not like it right now, but a lot of missionaries are in tough spots around the world. You're sent to that mission field. Serve Jesus there. Submit to your bosses. Be the best worker you can be. Blow people away by how you uh, are joyful and love to serve your employers and those over you. See, the list goes on. That's why he says, be in subjection to such men here. These men are caring for the Corinth church in Paul's absence. These were good men. Don't hinder them. Hebrews chapter 13 tells us not to hinder. It would be, it'd be not good for you if you hinder leadership. He warns us of that because they're keeping watch over your soul. Third point, comfort and joy received from the godly. Oh, I love these two verses. Look at this. I rejoice over the coming of Stephanos and Fortunatus and Archaicus because they have supplied what was lacking on your part, for they have refreshed my spirit and yours. Therefore, acknowledge such men. Notice Paul starts out with the phrase, I rejoice. The arrival of these three guys was just a tremendous source of joy to the Apostle Paul. I don't doubt that the Apostle Paul had a very heavy heart. I pastor one church. 
And there's days my heart is so heavy, I can almost not stand it. Can you imagine the oversight of so many churches as he goes through the list of all the dangers and everything he's involved in? At the end of that, he says, and the daily stress, anxiety of all the churches. Most likely, these three men were coming to Paul, bringing letters from the church. This would help Paul understand the spiritual condition, the problems that were going on that. And despite the challenging news, it's clear that Paul loved the church in Corinth. And these men represented the church he loved. And so it was refreshing to him to have them there. It seems that Stephanos would have been probably the most influential man of these three. The other two are never mentioned in the scriptures. But, but these men were, were, were not like Chloe's group that came in chapter 1 who reported. They were there visiting and reporting of some of the things they saw. These men were in leadership there. These men knew exactly what was going on. They knew the good, the bad, and the ugly. They saw that they could give a first-hand report to the Apostle Paul. And I think this is why he says that they supply what was lacking on your part. Paul had a deep longing to understand these Corinthian believers, to to, to know what was going on there. And, and doubtlessly they carried answers to his questions and they gave him a better understanding. And Paul is telling us that he's comforted by what he heard from them. I think that's encouraging, right? Maybe things weren't quite as bad in Corinth. Maybe these men came and said, yeah, we got some struggles in our view on marriage and there's some people lawsuit and we're trying to deal with a church discipline. We failed in some of those areas. But Paul, there are some good people there. They really love Jesus. And Paul was encouraged by that. See, I think the blessing of Christian friends is that they refresh your soul. I want you to think about that. Are you a Christian friend who refreshes the souls of your friends? It's such a need, isn't it? I think it's the mark of a true Christianity is that we love one another. Jesus himself says we'll be known by that. When we love one another, it's refreshing. It's not like the world. The world just will act like they love you in order to get something from you. Not in Christianity. Notice in verse 18, there he says, For they have refreshed my spirit and yours. Christian companionship. Christian companionship. Many times, men, I've had wives in my office and they said, My Husband has no friends. I have lots of friends. We sit Bible studies together. We study together. We keep each other accountable. My husband has no friends. Men, are you, are you giving up on Christian companionship? God has blessed us with brothers. And I, and I speak to men because women come more a little more naturally, right? They're, they're from Mars and we're from Venus, however that goes. Um, there's just something different about us, Right? But when you finally break down that wall and you say, brother, I want to meet with you. I want to pour out some of my struggles to you. Would you listen to me? And I know you love me. I've seen you with other men. Will you, will you love me and listen to me? Will you help me? You get a couple of guys together and pour their hearts out with one another and pray for one another. There will be a companionship that you've probably never tasted. A sweetness to that. It will affect your marriage, your job, everything you do. God put brothers in your life, men, to help you love Jesus, love his word, and love one another. Don't neglect that. Women use these relationships correctly. Bible studies are not for gossips, for studying and knowing Jesus, not tearing down your husband, but learning to pray with somebody when you're hurting. See, companionship is what God wants, and, and Paul sees this. He gives them to help us bear our sorrows, to share our joys. Good friends, you can say, my heart is so heavy. And the next day you can say, here's my joy. <laughs> and they will do the same with you. It gives you Christian companionship for encouragement, for preventing of sin. Good friends help you not sin. A good friend would say, Scott, that's not of God. I love you enough to say that. We have a good enough relationship for me to tell you that, brother. Prevents you from sin. Helps you from not losing heart. Some of you are losing heart. There are faint ones and weak ones in our midst. You're losing heart. Who have you counseled with? Who have you spent time with? If you get into a relationship with someone who is just as negative as you, it's probably not good. <laughs> is there someone in the midst that can say, oh, Jesus, you're so good to me. 
You've given me this relationship and helped me to be my part of this, to, to love and to care for this person. You say, well, Scott, how do I get this? Get in a Bible study. Open the Word of God together with a couple of guys around a cup of coffee, and you won't believe what happens to you. There are friendships and relationships that will last a lifetime. They protect from division. Good companions keep the church from splitting and doing things that God never intended to do. They compel us to love Christ, His Word, His people. And, and when these things are missing, like they were in Corinth, there's all kinds of factions. Listen, Paul says, look at this. You refresh my spirit. See, God loves to bring glory to himself. He saves people, but he also loves to put people in our lives to refresh our spirit. Do you have anybody in your life that does that with you? You say, well, I don't have anybody that does that. Well, are you doing it for somebody else? <laughs> Who have you texted this week or shot a phone call off or shot a note to and said, hey, I love you, man. I'm praying for you. I don't understand all that you're going through, but I'm praying. I'm bringing you before the Lord. What a gift that is to have men who are well acquainted. The word refresh is a beautiful word. and Hanapeo is the word. It means to set at rest or ease or cause rest, refreshment. It's even used for relaxation. But Jesus used it for what I think it was really meant to be. He says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you anapuo. I will give you refreshment. I will give you rest. See, that's a problem. We, we go through hard times, and what do we do? We stiffen up. We stick our heels in the ground. We, we try to sole a bootstrap this ourselves, and we don't go to the Lord where the refreshment is. Sometimes we just need to bend the knee, brothers and sisters, and say, I'm wrong, God. And it's affecting my marriage, my parenting, my finances. It's affecting all those things. I'm wrong, God. Go to him. Then you'll be a great friend. He'll refresh your soul. He'll give you what you need at the time, at the right time, at the right moment. Notice he says that they, he refreshed yours as well. This report made Paul refreshed, and that helps him how to respond to the Corinthians. And so here, when he hears this report, he says, For you have refreshed my spirit and yours. They have done that. They're coming as a refreshment for you because now we know what's going on there. Now we know how to help you. There's a refreshment coming to you when you're honest about where you're at. When you want to lie and cover that up and not deal with it, you will not be refreshed. It's so hard to cover lies and false life. You just got to keep doing the next one and the next one and the next one. Paul's saying, look, now I know. Your, your leaders are here with me. And they're going to refresh you because we know now how to address these things. Praise the Lord for refreshment. Are you refreshing blessing to your fellow believers? I, I think the context, if we look at this, speaking of speaking in context, I think the refresh, refreshing and blessing is your leaders here. If you refresh your leaders, they'll be blessed. I think the application is refreshing one another. But here, when these leaders, these men that have come, and Apostle Paul, when they're refreshed, there is a great blessing that comes to the rest of them. I often wondered if I should sit down and write a book called The Day in the Life of a True Pastor. Experiences this week hung up the phone with a disturbing, hard, heavy-hearted situation. And I just said, God, I don't know how to fix this. I don't know how to help this person. And the next phone call I get, the baby girls coming to our family. I mean, it just, and even when the kids told us, my heart was still reeling from the previous phone call. And then, and it just, that's life. That's what it is, isn't it? It's so difficult. And there's times of refreshment. And then you go, well, Scott, we all experience that. And I said, uh, yes, we do. But after 39 years of ministry, I have hundreds and hundreds of families. Dear brother called me this last week, and his son, who was a good friend of mine, 52 years old, got a brain tumor, died nine months. I watched the funeral. I watched his siblings, one after another, said, if there was a man who loved Jesus, who died for Christ, it was Scott. His name was Scott, too. And one after another came up and said, he lived till the last breath. These people put me up 
for three years while I went to seminary, fed me, cared for me. And then I'd go home and my wife would care for me and help me and plan at churches and try to do seminary. That's just you, the unbelievable amount that comes at you, particularly in leadership. You need people who refresh you. And there's such a balance. I, I don't want you to say, oh, don't bother Scott anymore. No, 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 no. There's a great balance. I need that. I need to hear that. All of us pastors want to care for you and love you in those difficult situations. And we want to rejoice with you in the great ones. Right? It's the life of a Christian. What's stopping you from being a Stephanos, a Fortunatos, a Cassius? What's stopping you from being those type of people? Fourth, unity in Christ expresses in our heartfelt greetings. Look at 19 through 21. The churches of Asia greet you. Aquila and Priscilla greet you heartily in the Lord with the church that is in their house. All the brethren greet you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. The greeting is in my own hand, Paul. Well, there's five greetings really here. The greeting from the Church of Asia, the greetings from this missionary couple, Aquila and Priscilla, uh, and their house church, a greeting from all the other brethren in Paul's circle, then instruction how to greet one another, and then Paul's own handwritten greeting. Well, the first one is these churches in Asia. Asia Minor had spread out under this Roman providence, and Jews and Gentiles were living in these major cities. Um, And among them were places like Ephesus and Colossa and Laodicea and so forth, and there were many churches scattered in there. And Paul's saying, these churches greet you. In those churches were men like Epaphras and Tychicus and Philemon and Archippus and Trophimaeus and so forth. Many, many men pastoring and caring for the souls of these believers in these churches. And Paul was continuing. I think what he's doing here, he's continuing trying to unite the greater church. Bring us together. Realize that there's other brothers and sisters out there serving the Lord. Men preaching the gospel. and And they greet you. Why it's so important to have interaction with other churches. He goes on to Aquila and Priscilla here greet you with a heart, greet you heartily in the Lord. I love the language here. With a church that is in their house. Well, these two, this really uh, humble but power couple, they were a great refreshing agent to the Apostle Paul. If there was ever a couple that you could talk about refreshing, it was this couple. They were the model. They were Jewish Christians persecuted for their faith, kicked out of Rome, ended up in Corinth as tent makers and ran into Paul there and began to minister together. They spent a lifetime of partnering together. Their missionary endeavors led them to Ephesus. There they ran into Apollos who would become a great evangelist and preacher himself, but God used that couple to help straighten him out. So they became a Christ-centered preacher. Wherever they went, they had the church in their home. They uh, opened their doors. They showed hospitality. Men and women, listen, hospitality is a missing gift anymore. We don't let people in our homes. That's not how the early church functioned. Home to home. One of the things we're going to talk about tonight, home to home. It's a place where people can come. This is a little overwhelming at times, but they can come to your home group. They can come to your home, have a meal with you. This is what this couple did so well. Then they brought them to the greater group. Interesting enough, ladies, I want you to think about this. Six times in the scripture, this couple is mentioned. Four of those times, Priscilla's name comes first. And it tells you she was a godly woman in her own right. And she was the example of what Paul wrote as a Titus II type of woman. God used them greatly and he wanted them, he wanted the Corinth church to know that they were thinking about him. Next one says, all brethren greet you. This is the third greeting. This may seem a bit redundant. Uh, redundant, but this is Paul's way. He's trying to unify. He wants all the churches greet you. Um, the most known to the, to the least. And, and as Rome expanded, they built roads and cities and aqueducts and, and the gospel was going forward just like Christ told the, the apostles to do. Go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the, the remotest parts of the earth and take the gospel and that was happening. And because and what happens is we can get in our little churches and we just got all the stuff we're going through and all that we have here. We got financial this and that, all that kind of stuff going on. We forget that there's a great universal church that Jesus is the head of and God's at work in. And so we bring pastors from the remotest part of the world and they stand in this pulpit last Sunday and tell you what's going on in their life. See, that's what Paul does. It unifies. It unifies us together. And I love that. Next, he says, really gives instructions of how to greet. Greet one another with a holy kiss. 
You would think this is the only place. Many of his epistles, he ends with this. Romans 16, 16, greet one another with a holy kiss. 2 Corinthians 13, 12, greet one another with a holy kiss. 1 Thessalonians 5, 26, greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. Peter gets into it. 1 Peter 5, 14, greet one another with a kiss of love. When Paul is going to Jerusalem and he says, I'm not going to see you anymore. In Acts 20, verse 37, they said they wept aloud, embraced him, and kissed him repeatedly. Here's what Paul's doing here, brothers and sisters. He's encouraging gestures of affection within the church. And you say, well, that's cultural and customary. Well, here's how Paul makes it different. He raises the spiritual level to this by calling it a holy kiss. That adjective prevents misunderstanding and misuse. I've only come home with lipstick on my collar from one place. The church. <laughs> Older women who have greeted me uh, in their love for whatever it may be, be burying their husband or whatever it is. Uh, and I thank the Lord for them. And it's a sign of affection, isn't it? It's, it's, it's God showing himself, welling him up in us. And here's the point. Christians should show holy affection towards one another. You're blood-bought Christ sacrificed for you. That should stir up emotion for one another. You can't look at each other and say, oh, there's Bob. That's Bob who Christ died for. Give him a hug. Shake his hand. Take him to lunch. Do something. <laughs> Do it in holiness. Stirs up emotion. Here's the principle. I think he's teaching here. No matter how big or how small the local church, its members should not be strangers to each other. How many people you know in this church? Are you working hard? It's a big church. Lots of people. Lots of moving parts. You work hard. Go up and down the aisle. See somebody you don't know. Hey, my name is Scott. I don't, I, have we met? You'll hear me do this with you. I can't remember everybody's name. Uh, who are you? I want to know you. I don't want to be a stranger to you. And I don't want you to be strangers to one another. And you go, well, nobody's introduced himself to me. Well, yeah, sorry about that. Who'd you introduce yourself to? Come on. Greet somebody with a holy gesture. Don't be a stranger. See, when we do these things, we show that Christ has stirred our heart. Finally, he says, greet, uh, this greeting is my own hand, Paul. Well, it's evidence that, that Paul wrote a lot of letters, right? Some were inspired, some were not. He wrote a lot of them, and a lot of them were written by his associates that he dictated to them. And doubtless, see, some of them he wrote in his own hands, or certain ones in prison, final prison, he wasn't able to write. He had, uh, have somebody write for him, he wrote for himself. But he says, look, I'm, greeting this, I'm writing this greeting in my own hand, me, Paul, I did this. I'm here, I might have dictated it, but, but it's me. And those Corinthians would have said, yep, that's Paul, that's his penmanship. This is a gesture of love from their pastor. They would have understood that. Finally, fifth, a strong warning with an affection-affirming love. A strong warning with an affectionate-affirming love. Verses 20 through, 22 through 24, follow with me. If anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. Period. Maranatha. Period. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. Period. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Period. Amen. Period. Well, verse 22 <laughs> finds a very strong warning against anyone who does not love Jesus. Now look, Paul's adamant here. I think what he's saying that if a person is not saved, there's no way they can be saved if they do not love the groom of the church. How can you? It's, inter it's interesting, along that line of affection, he doesn't use agapeo as, as that unconditional type of love. He uses phileo. And so I think Paul's saying, he said, you and I, you should have tender affections towards Christ. When you think about him, there should be an emotion that comes out of you. A God-given emotion, not a, not a wild, goofy one that so many people get caught in. But there's emotion. I can't wait to see him, brothers and sisters. I can't wait to be in his presence. Motion flows out of you when you study his life. I love that study on Journey with Jesus because it taught me to see him page after page, all who he was as his life is laid out in front of us. You fall in love with him deeper and deeper. Are you passionate about Jesus? That might be why you don't greet, why you don't serve. 
You've got to be passionate. Our hearts need to be inflamed with a love for the Lord. And if they're not, you've got to go, what's, where's the root? What's in there? What's, what's, why am I not passionate for Jesus and all that he has done? In Paul's mind, he can't envision, he can't even envision a person that isn't in love with a groom. It's way, it's way out of there. And people say, well, I'm religious. I, I get good feelings when I go to church and I can evaluate whether the sermon was good or not and uh, whether I like that song or not. And I've done some good things in my life. But if you are not in love with a groom, you do not have union with him. There's no dating Jesus. This is a full-time, 24-hour, 365-day relationship with him. And it brings great emotion. Great emotion driven from truth. Paul's conclusion is stunning, isn't it? Accursed. You've got to deeply ponder this. He, he uses the word uh, uh, anathemed here, the Greek word. It, it means not only cursed, it means devoted to destruction. So, so bear with me. If we can translate this out and, and interpret this, it means if you don't love Jesus, you're eternally damned. I don't know how else to put it. He knows there's people in Corinth that don't love Jesus. Their lives look like it, act like it. And then he says, oh, one thought. Judas kissed Jesus. Mm. Don't let your outward behavior fool you of what your heart is. People love to go to church and do all kinds of things, right? It's crazy stuff we see in American Christianity. Where your heart is, is your treasure. And where your treasure is, is your heart. He follows this up, period, with Maranatha, which is very interesting. And I think it's an appropriate response. So Paul's saying, oh, Lord, please come soon. Right? Maranatha, come soon, Lord Jesus. That's the idea here. But in the context, he's saying, oh, Lord, please come soon. Take away those who falsely profess you and bring out the true church that will embrace you. That's the context of that. You can play with that all you want. Oh, Maranatha is great. Well, come to Jesus. No, no, no. It's in the context of those who don't love Jesus. Paul can't wait for the purity of the church to come forth. And I'll tell you, we won't, we'll see that in this earth. But someday, he will wipe off the dross. He will take the chaff out. He will put that into everlasting punishment. And he will bring forth his own shined and bright and perfect in the presence of God. And Paul says, oh Lord, come soon. I think Apostle Paul was tired of those who tried to imitate Christianity. He was tired of those who, who mocked him and did all these things and mocked his Savior. He wanted to see the true church and that's what he's after. And any pastor worth his salt who studies at all wants to see that. And you as Christians want that as well. Oh, come soon, Lord Jesus. Show us who stands with you. Show us who loves your son and loves your word and loves your people. In closing, I want to give you one more challenge. I have banged these three things, that drum, for the last two months. Love Christ. Love his word. Love his people. Which one do you struggle with the most? I want you to be very honest with you and God right now. Do you love Christ? Do you love his word? Do you love his people? They, they're all interconnected. You can't love Christ without knowing his word because you get a wrong Jesus. We see it all the time. The Jesus, so many of these American churches are, think they're worship, but it's not the Jesus of the Bible. So they're connected. Do you have a biblical knowledge of Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible? Do you love his word so you get the right Jesus right? And the result of that is you love his people. Where's your weakness? I know a lot of Christians who love Jesus and love word, but they are not friendly people. They will not go out of their way. They're more worried about their seat and saving this and getting out and getting beat in the traffic from the other church and all that other stuff. I, I just, I mean, guys, we just have to be careful of this stuff, right? Where is our treasure? Which one is your weakness? Which one is it? The last verse will help you. 23 and 24. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. Say, God, I need your grace. I don't love people like I should. I just don't love them. I see their faults. 
I'm quick to see that. Or I don't know your Bible. I'm I'm just a pew sitter. I'm dependent totally on the pastor to bring a good message. I don't read it during the week. I don't study it. I may have a verse on Instagram, but I don't know it. And Jesus, I'm afraid. I don't really know who you are. See, confess those things. The Bible has the grace of the Lord Jesus. He's with you. If you're a believer, he'll help you. And then verse 24, my love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Christ never leaves you. If you're a believer, no matter what you're going through, he has not left you. You feel distance from him because you're chasing your own desires, but he has not left you. He'll never abandon his own. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you love us. We thank you for this book called 1 Corinthians. It has revealed a lot in our own lives, in our own church. But really, it's a book about those who love you and those who don't. Lord, we want to be people who love you, love your word, and love your people. Help us do that. Help us do that well for your glory. Help us not give up. Lord, some are hurt in this room. Some are lonely. Some are frustrated. Some are mad. Some don't know where to begin. Lord, let it begin with your son. Let them see the pardoning power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let them be saved, Lord. And those who are saved, who are struggling with those issues, let them return to the pardoning message of Jesus Christ. And may their souls be captivated with Jesus once again. Lord, help us. Thank you that you do not leave us nor forsake us. In Jesus' name. Amen.